Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. So clearly I am still not keeping up with a regular schedule, and I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I'm shooting for bi-weekly, but I've been publishing a little bit randomly whenever I have the energy, and it kind of is what it is right now. Um, I also just don't know how to talk on the podcast about everything that's happening in our communities because of coronavirus. I think it's pretty obvious that this interview was recorded in 2019 before any of this was happening, and that doesn't change how important the story is at all, but I found myself really startled by how much has changed so quickly in the world around us. And I know it's impacting a lot of us in a lot of different and sometimes unexpected ways, and I hope you have someone to talk about that with, but if you don't, come over and say hi to me on Twitter, because we've been talking a lot about it, and I think it's a good space to talk honestly about some of the fallout, even if it's not like the right thing to say. I think I've articulated that better on Twitter. So again, come over there. Um, Anyway, this week I'm talking to Christy Margrave about endometriosis and IVF. This conversation was very technically informative, but Christy was also really open about how this entire experience has felt for her. I think it will resonate with a lot of people. And as a content note that might've been obvious, this episode includes significant conversation about fertility and pregnancy. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So I like to start just by asking people, how was your health as a kid? My health was pretty good as a kid, sort of, especially as a young child. I had no more than, you know, the usual tonsillitis, few infections, you know, nothing to write home about, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, My health was great. I guess my only problems really started when I got to about 12. Okay. Just before I was 12. So as a teenager, I had quite a lot of problems with what has now turned out to be endometriosis, but what you know, wasn't um, diagnosed for 22 years. So I had a lot of problems with my periods, basically, was what I was always told. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in a lot of pain. I was vomiting, um, fainting, um, getting anemia all the time. So I was backwards and forwards to the doctor, having blood tests, and backwards and forwards to a specialist as well. But, I mean, at that age, sort of they said, you know, she'll grow out of it. You know, this kind of thing happens sometimes. She's too young for us to do anything about it. So, yeah, until I was about 12, I was pretty good. Mm -hmm. And then did it kind of take off right away with your period like your period came with difficult symptoms and side effects immediately the very the very first one I ever got actually is very ironic but it started just after a sex education talk Hmm. Um, (laughs) my body was sort of saying oh this is appropriate but yeah pretty much and yeah so from the very first I was in quite a lot of pain I missed the rest of that day of school because so I went to school about an hour and a half away from where my parents lived I used to get the bus um both of my parents worked I couldn't uh, go home immediately so I ended up spending the day and lying down in the sick room um feeling really ill and in a lot of pain and fortunately there was a lot of help there I had a really nice head of year and the lady that had come in to do the sex education talk was full of free you know giveaways yeah Um, (laughs) that was pretty helpful too and 
Yeah. So yeah, pretty much from the get go. And, you know, that wasn't a particularly great one. But from then on, things just spiraled downwards, really. Mm -hmm. Within a couple of months, I was fainting. Yeah. And did they I know you said they were like, you're really young, there's nothing we can do. Mm -hmm. Was there anything Mm -hmm. that they did? Like, I mean, I guess they must have checked your iron levels if they told you Mm -hmm. you were anemic. But was there anything that they were looking for? Or did they have any suggestions for you beyond like, take ibuprofen or something? really I mean they said so they yeah they checked my iron levels and they treated the anemia and it was pretty bad but they managed to treat it with iron tablets I didn't have to go into hospital they put me on the pill so the specialist put me on the pill from being 12 and they gave me ponstan or methanamic acid same thing it's just basically a stronger version of ibuprofen okay yeah so I was I've been taking that ever since Uh, And it worked reasonably well, I've got to say. It controlled how heavy things were, so I didn't get anemic as often. Mm -hmm. And it helped quite a lot with the pain. I didn't completely get rid of it, but it made life functionable. And the older I got um, and the more the pain got worse, the more I realized um, that I could take slightly more than it said to take on the packet and still be okay. So I managed to regulate things okay with that. There'd still be a lot of incident, a lot of embarrassing incidents though. And especially when you're a young teenager, you know, you get bullied a lot for stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And there'd still be incidents where, you know, nothing would work basically. And pretty much everybody who knows me really well has seen me at some point either throw up in public or pass out in public or be in so much pain I can't get out of bed or, Mm -hmm. yeah. So there there were always times when, you know, nothing was going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing, I guess when, as a kid, it's embarrassing and stigmatized and all of that stuff. And I feel like when you transition out of like a school environment into a work environment, you run into a whole new set of difficulty in managing, like, how do I have a life when I also can't function however many days every 28 days? Mm -hmm. So what was that like going from high school to everything that came next, basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, in many ways, I suppose I've picked one of the only jobs I probably could do. Um, So I'm an academic. And uh, a lot of the time, I can work from home, not obviously on teaching, you know, teaching days or days when I should be in for examiner's meetings or teaching is, is the main one that I can't really miss without having to get cover for. But as an academic, because so I originally trained as a high school teacher when I would have to be in all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And, and as an academic, I, I, I don't, you know, if I teach three hours in a day, I can go home and rest afterwards, or I can stay in bed until 11 if I'm just teaching in the afternoon. So it has a lot of flexibility with it, which makes it perfect, really. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it also meant that a lot of the time until I was 28, I guess, I was a student, more or less. Right. Um, aside from the one year that I worked as a high school teacher. So, yeah, so again, I could more or less work in my own time a lot Mm. of the time. It does mean that I don't always meet deadlines, especially if they're, you know, short-term things. You know, if I have maybe a week to write an abstract for um, a conference or for a paper that I've written or something, I don't always make it. Friends and colleagues have been really, really supportive, though, and particularly since I started telling people about the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, I've had I had two lovely colleagues recently that I was um, publishing an article. I was giving them an article for a journal that they were co-editing, um, and they even helped me with cutting words out of it because I was in hospital and I didn't have time to do it myself. So. Yeah just not functional it's a a supportive environment in that respect and it's a useful profession to be in in terms of flexible hours Mm -hmm. so I've been very very lucky I don't know that I would be able to constantly turn up to a nine-to-five job yeah right right and then you mentioned diagnosis so at what point did it go from like you're young we can't do anything like you know that you'll stabilize or whatever they say to young people about this stuff to yeah you'll get used to it (laughs) you'll get used to this debilitating pain yeah um far too late actually (laughs) so things started to get a fair bit worse about where are we 2019 and maybe late 2015 early 2016 so three or four years ago where I started with some new symptoms. I was getting a lot of IBS kind of symptoms and I had to stop going for a run, um, which I admittedly I've never been very uh, sporty, but I did quite enjoy, you know, putting a podcast on and, you know, going out for a run. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped doing that because I was getting a lot of intestinal symptoms. Cyclical as well, or were they kind of constant? Interesting. I don't think they were actually. No, I think that um, that was pain that I was starting to get outside of um, my cycle, mm-hmm. period rather. Yeah, by that point though, I'd more or less stopped going to the doctor. I'd kind of given up really right. um, after so many years of saying the same thing over and over again and just getting, oh, take the pill, you'll be fine. You know, this happens to every woman. Yeah. Oh, we'll try you on a different pill. And, you know, for a while, those kind of things did, you know, help a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, I thought, okay, fair enough, you know, if this is what I have to do, this is what I have to do. And, uh, yeah, the most recent suggestion had been, well, if the pill's not working, then you should really try an IUD, which I never wanted. And the doctor I kept going back to said, oh, I don't understand why you don't want this. You know, this this might really help you. And I, the concept of a foreign body inside me all the time, especially like just couldn't bear to be touched, was just it was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I more or less stopped going. And when I eventually did ask for some help, I just sort of was told, oh, well, take some buscapan, you know, and things, it's a little bit of, you know, IBS, things will settle down. They didn't. And the vomiting got worse. And yeah, I did manage to sort of control it fairly often with buscapan, but I was missing more work. Um, and I was actually having to run out a couple of times in the middle of my own lectures. Yeah, so things only really started to improve actually this year. So from January, February this year, I moved out to Australia to start a new job over here. And I started seeing a new doctor. I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but I started seeing a female GP for the first time. Or perhaps it's just that awareness is you know, a little bit greater over here. Uh, and the very first thing that my new GP said to me was, do you think this could be endometriosis? And I sort of sat there saying, I'm sure somebody would have mentioned that to me before. I didn't know what it was. Um, this was just a brand new word. So I thought, oh, I'm sure somebody would have mentioned a disease to me if it could possibly be a disease. So anyway, she prescribed the um, medication I was used to taking. And I went home, I looked up this endometriosis thing. And I went back a couple of weeks later and I was like, hmm. I think you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, really so, sounds like exactly yeah. what I'm experiencing. Literally down to almost the last, I guess there are only like maybe one, two symptoms on a list of about 12 that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and yeah, so she referred me to another specialist. This would be like the third or fourth time I've seen a specialist. And this time the specialist said, I'm pretty much 99% sure you do have endometriosis, but obviously the only way we can confirm that is through um, diagnostic laparoscopy. Mm -hmm. And they did that in July and found that not only did I have it, but it was severe. It was everywhere. I had basically on my bladder, bowel, everything was stuck to the side of my abdomen. My left ovary was this tangled mess stuck to my insides. And I had endometriosis patches everywhere. I had an endometrioma. So, yeah, I came out of that with a little operation report saying stage four endometriosis and burst into tears going like, why did why didn't everybody pick this up in 22 years right um so then i guess it was just another sort of spiral because i mean i expected i <clears throat> i thought be going before going into the surgery that either i would wake up feeling relief um at a diagnosis or that i would wake up feeling oh okay well it wasn't that what on earth could it be mm -hmm. i didn't I, I woke up feeling scared and alone and completely overwhelmed and just completely worthless, basically, because I couldn't make myself heard for 22 years. I'd been crying out for help and nobody was there. And yeah, because I wasn't actually, originally I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody when I was in the hospital. You know, I was expecting somebody to come and discharge me. And they said, oh, no, it's fine. You can just go home. Here's the operation report. And again, I burst into tears, like, but is nobody going to come and explain what happened to my body? Like, I don't understand. I was asleep. I don't yeah. know what happened. I don't understand half the words on this paper. Yeah. Um, and at the very bottom of the operation report, there was a slightly confusing section, at least for anybody with no medical background anyway, whereby there are a bunch of codes um, and things written next to the codes. But it doesn't tell you that in order for that um, code to apply, not everything on the list has to have been done. So I was reading things like insertion of device for sterilization and thought, oh my goodness, like what's happened? Yeah, you know, like, did that happen to me? You know? So I, I mean, I was, yeah, completely terrified, completely frightened and just felt like I really didn't matter mm -hmm. at all. So I guess, although physically things have been starting to improve a fair bit since maybe August, September, mentally and psychologically, things have still been really difficult. They got worse for a while and, you know, they're, they're a fair bit better now. I have a really good treating team around me and I'm seeing a psychologist too, to, mainly for counselling sort of sessions, just to help me come to terms with things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so there was a whole side of things that I hadn't really expected to come out. I hadn't really expected my mental health to, to be affected as much as it was by the diagnosis. Right, right. Especially because, I mean, kind of like you said, you thought, this does sound like me. If it turns out that this is what it is, I imagine that it will feel like a relief. Yes, and I really like, did think so. Yeah. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like part of that that is kind of unfortunately universal is like exactly what you said like I have been talking to doctors about these symptoms for years or mm -hmm. decades mm -hmm. and nobody even mentioned that this was like a possibility and especially like endometriosis is increasingly looking like pretty common and Absolutely so they say one in ten women have it which makes it as common as diabetes yeah and it's not it's not suggested. And I like, I actually did just get an IUD put in this summer because my pain is so bad as a like, let's start by trying this before investigating anything else. But it was the same, like, 
my experience is really similar in that I've been talking about painful periods since I was a teenager. And Mm -hmm. I've been given, in my case, a naproxen prescription, which is also just like a stronger version of ibuprofen. But like, Mm -hmm. nobody was ever like, oh, have you heard about endometriosis? And Mm -hmm. I have now, and I know that you need a laparoscopy. So I was like, I will try the IUD before this other Mm -hmm. invasive thing in my case. Mm -hmm. But like, why aren't people asking about this? It's not normal to be in debilitating pain with your period. No. That's not a normal part of your period. But somehow... No, it's not right, I guess, to be told that it is normal because yeah. it makes you feel inadequate, you know, that you can't cope with it, that somehow every other woman in the world can cope with the same level of pain that you have mm-hmm. um, and you can't. You know, you know it yourself that something is not normal. Right? Yeah. You know? You, you, you break a bone or you trip over or, I don't know, you have dental work or whatever and you know it hurts, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as debilitating as, you know, feeling like the bottom half of your body has been mauled by a crocodile or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially when there are the, like, secondary symptoms. I mean, like, you're talking about mm-hmm. fainting and vomiting and mm-hmm. it's it's still absurd, but it's one thing when you're just describing cramps and someone is saying, oh, all women experience pain and they're just coping with it. And it's another thing to look around and go, yeah, but nobody else is fainting from the pain or like, yes. no, you know, like that's not happening to most people that I know. So mm. being told over and over again for decades that you'll get used to it. Yeah. That you'll get used to just like fainting in public because of your menstrual cycle. is like, mm. I have questions, but it's not until you find out that that's not normal, of course, that you are able to contextualize it. It's so frustrating. I, um, I, I've been seeing, actually, I, I've stopped seeing now, but for a little while I was seeing a physiotherapist just for sort of neck sitting at the computer kind of wrong problem. But I mentioned at the same time um, that I had this TENS machine and I didn't know like where to put the electrodes and how well it would work and so on. And so he showed me sort of where it should sit and how it might work. And he asked me a couple of questions. He has a lot of uh, clients who have sort of severe pain with their endometriosis to the point where they can't walk and he said how did you find out you had it and I said well I had this diagnostic laparoscopy where they it wasn't just diagnostic actually they managed to remove um quite a lot of it at the same time and uh, he said you know sort of shook his head and said I really don't understand you know like with all the medical progress that they have these days why they still have to do an invasive surgical procedure and cut people open to diagnose this condition when they realize how many women these days actually you know these days they do realize how many women actually have it mm-hmm. um and it, it was a fair point you know i i'd not quite sort of thought about that you know he said um it's a real shame they had to do that and i said well that's the only way they can diagnose it and he said well i know that but why right <laughs> you know why is there no blood test why is that i think i believe that somebody has probably been working on developing one but yeah, why is there no... Or like uh, ultrasound. It seems like something that you should... Because yeah. I just realized we haven't talked about what endometriosis is. And I am assuming that most people know, but maybe some people don't. So mm-hmm. tell me what it means to have endometriosis. 
So endometriosis is when cells similar to the lining of your um, uterus, so the endometrium, grow outside of your uterus, so in your abdominal cavity. So they could be growing on the outside of your uterus or in your uterine ligaments, on your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, your bowel, your bladder. There are even, I think, rare occasions where it makes it into your chest or you know elsewhere in your body but um largely speaking it's when it grows um sort of in your in your abdominal cavity and those cells attempt to bleed um every month at the same time as you shed your um, endometrium so obviously there's nowhere for those bleeding cells to go so they become inflamed and cause a heck of a lot of pain and they can grow and particularly if you end up with it on your ovaries you can develop what they call endometriomas which are cysts basically of endometrial cells or cells similar to the endometrium Mm -hmm. and they if you sort of develop them for quite a long time they are sort of dark brown and they call them chocolate cysts i think um sort of old blood i guess um Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah. those we often do show up on ultrasounds, like any other cyst would, mm-hmm. or any other decent-sized cyst would. But uh, endometriosis anywhere else, more often than not, doesn't. Yeah, and so then back because I have talked about it with a couple people on the show before, but the two people that I can think of both had like a larger overshadowing issue. So in those conversations, mm-hmm. endometriosis was like, oh, and also this awful painful thing. So we just didn't, yeah. I think talk about the mechanism as much but but yeah so to the point that like right now the only diagnostic tool is like putting a scope in there to see if they can see that tissue which yeah. is still and if you look and you get somebody like i did somebody who's skilled at removing it as well you know you can deal with them both at the same time you can get the diagnosis and you can have it treated mm-hmm. which is great but it would nice to be able to have the diagnosis and to know for sure before you sort of sign up to to have yourself cut open but yeah yeah Yeah. because it's one of those situations where like you have to as you discovered with your paperwork you like are consenting before you really understand the question yeah which means you have a lot more questions when you wake up as nice as they are and as great as they are at dealing with it they you know, they're, they're very busy people, you know, and they're probably delivering babies, you know, um, an hour or so later or something. So they don't always, un- quite understandably, have the time to go into any detail with you. And it's a real shame because it's not just a physically debilitating condition, it's an emotionally debilitating one as well, particularly as most women who have the diagnosis have had it for several years, if not decades, before finding out that that's what it is. So, you know, people maybe when they wake up um, from surgery, don't always remember everything that everybody's going to say to them, but what they do remember is how they felt. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, in my experience, the, the women I've talked to said that they woke up and felt scared. They felt, you know, confused. Relief is not always the first feeling. It's what happens next? How bad is it? What mm-hmm. did you find? What did you have to remove? Do I still have all my working parts? And, you know, what on earth did these long Greek words on my operation report mean? Yes. Yes. Um, all of those yeah. questions. Yeah. yeah. And so let's talk about kind of the ones that we can talk about answers to. So mm-hmm. so basically this, the laparoscopy is when you're diagnosed and also when, as it turns out, they do, they remove some tissue. And so... Mm-hmm. Now that you hopefully have a little bit more information, what do they tell you after that? Like, what does treatment look like? What do they expect? 
kind of how do they expect things to go from after that laparoscopy? So I, and I think this is standard. I had to follow up about six and a half, seven weeks after the laparoscopy to go over the report with me, which I'd actually already been over with my GP because I really needed help with it. And yeah, my GP was amazing. But anyway, yep. So to go over the report and to tell you in a lot more detail what they found and even occasionally to show you some photos, which I found really helpful actually to know what it looks like, Mm -hmm. you know? It's all right saying you have this thing, but it could have been Mickey Mouse growing inside me. Yeah. You know, it's like really helpful to know what it looks like. Yeah, that uh, it was real. Yeah, for sure. It does make it more real. And I, I don't know if this is the case with a lot of people that you speak to, but I find it a lot easier to process something once I understand it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was useful. And at the same follow-up, I was given two or three treatment options, which was great. So my gynecologist already knew that I didn't want an IUD. That option was there but I she knew I didn't want it and there was no way she was going to push it mm-hmm. um the other options were so strong levels of progesterone um going back on the pill possibly or stronger version thereof I can all, so I can only take the progesterone only pill because of um migraines migraines mm. with aura um, so I had to stop taking the combined pill quite a long time ago. And obviously with now they know how I have endometriosis, it's progesterone that they need to control it with anyway, rather than estrogen. Then there was basically chemically induced menopause, which I'm told is 100% reversible, but it's still not something that I've ever been happy going with because I don't trust my body, essentially. Yeah. I think my body take this and run with it. I am 34. I want children. And, you know, despite the fact that my periods have been debilitating and problematic, I'm not ready to lose sort of that part of my womanhood. You know, I'm, I'm not ready to, to finish being fertile, basically. And although they, as I say, they say it's 100% reversible, I'm just not sure that that would be the case for me. As I say, I, I really don't trust my body. So I was always going to reject that too. And the the third option, option is probably the, the wrong way to put it, but um, uh, she said to me, you know, how have you thought about having children? You know, are you in a position where you think you would like to have children? And I said, well, I've always wanted to be a mom, you know, I desperately wanted to be a mom. My relationships have largely been affected by the fact that physical contact is painful. Um, and I'm, you know, I, yeah, I've I've had a lot of problems committing, not necessarily committing to relationships. I'm a, I'm a very kind of romantic and intimate person, but wanting that sort of side of things, and yeah, it sort of it means that a lot of relationships fall at the first hurdle, basically. Mm-hmm. So I am single, so I I said you know I'm not really in a position to have children unless it's through using a sperm donor. And she said to me, well, look, given the severity of your endometriosis, following the excision surgery that you've had, you have roughly a decent six-month window in which to to think about having children, in which to to try and get pregnant. Pregnancy will help in that you won't be, obviously, you won't be menstruating for nine months. You won't be producing the hormones that cause, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the growth of the endometrial cells within your abdomen. Yeah. Yeah. Pregnancy, which yeah. is basically what what you want. So your other option, if option is the right word, is pregnancy. Um, and I said, well, look, you know, I've always wanted to be a mum. And if I've got six months in which to try and make it happen, let's do it. Um, 
So, yeah, what I eventually decided was to go through the process of IVF. Which um, is, like, because you're absolutely right to say calling it an option is maybe the right word, because yeah. obviously it sounded like an option that interested you, and at the same time, like, very big deal that that is not a treatment sure. choice, you know, right? You don't, you don't do it as a treatment option, right. you do it because desperately want children and yeah. because you, you're told that you've only got a small window in which you might ever be likely to make this happen and but at the same time does have the advantage of you know calming things down for a little while yeah yeah and I want to actually like talk about that for a second the first part so mm-hmm. she told you that there's a window and yeah. what makes that why is that that is a great question that I'm not sure I have the best answers to, not being, not being a medic. But what I, from what I understand, because of the, because of what they were able to remove, it means that the the damage is sort of less less severe than it was, or the pain is less severe than it was. The problems are less severe than they were, but that they will come back. You know, no matter how much progesterone you take, this is not a condition that's curable. Right. Tissue will grow back. Yes. And there's no guarantee of where it will grow back. You know, if it's, uh, so at the moment, my left ovary is very problematic. It's not really functioning very well. If it were to happen with the right as well, you know, I might lose all chances of having children. My fallopian tubes currently work. If endometriosis were to grow there and to block them, that would stop my ability to have children. So yeah, because it's so unpredictable and because it's completely incurable at the moment, this window basically from when they've removed it to when it really starts to create problems again is the best time to, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's that's what I understand yeah, from what she said. They also obviously like medically I think don't understand why either but but it's that thing like they remove it better than I do yeah (laughs) but you know given how right she's been with everything so far Mm -hmm. be willing to you know yeah to trust what she does yeah yeah and I just mean that like they don't know why it happens or like why it grows back but obviously experientially can say like here's what typically happens it starts to come back kind of at this rate and mm-hmm. if it was this invasive before, we can expect mm-hmm. that after that time period, it will yeah. invade again. That's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Strange yeah. language for and me. I'm, but... I'm lucky in that I didn't have a sort of any fibroids or any growths within my uterus or anything. So my body is in a, a decent situation at the moment to be able, as decent as it's ever going to be. It's not perfect, uh, but to be able to carry a child. You know, there are still doubts about that, you know, because of the endometriosis that I've had and the amount of time it's been in there growing and getting worse. There are still obviously a lot of doubts about how successful it could be. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yeah, it is in a better situation now than it was a few months ago, and it will be in a few months' time. Yeah. So, actually, I still have more questions. So, you said you're in mm. Australia now. Mm. And how yeah. is, like, health insurance coverage for this kind of stuff, for gyneco- gynecological health, oh my goodness, and fertility? Um, there have been a few articles recently actually saying that women in Australia spend upwards of, I think it's $31,000 on their endometriosis, mm-hmm. um, you know, medical bills, whether that be hospitalization, doctor's fees, um, medications, that sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Was it that women spend that or that it cost the economy that? I can't quite remember because um, no, it's, it, I think it cost the economy a lot more than that, actually, because of the number of days that, that work. women take off work. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so the situation for me here is slightly different than the situation for sort of other economic migrants from other um, parts of the world would be in that Australia and the UK have a reciprocal healthcare agreement, which means that I have... Um, so Australians have Medicare cards, and that means that their health care is covered, largely speaking, um, by the government. Anybody that charges above the level of what the government pays, obviously they have to pay the out-of-pocket difference, but the vast majority of things are covered. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, my reciprocal Medicare card, which is a slightly different colour, because of my status as a Brit in Australia, again covers anything that is that can't wait until you get home, basically. Yeah. So anything that's urgent. And given that my contract over here is for several years, I was able to have the laparoscopy on the public health system. So that didn't cost me anything. It's possible to see GPs over here that bulk bill so that, again, you don't have to pay. I made the decision to to see a GP who doesn't bulk bill. But uh, again, the out-of-pocket difference is very, very small. Gotcha. And it's completely worth it. I think I would pay 10 times as much as I do to keep seeing my current GP being the first one who ever actually listened to me. So yeah, the health insurance system, you can also obviously get private health insurance, which would cover, you know, all of those, all of those differences and would allow you to get treated in a private hospital as well. But I don't have that at the moment Um, until I get, hopefully I will at some point get permanent residency, then I'll you know, get private health insurance on top of it. But pretty much everything that needs to be covered is covered by the, yeah. By the public health system. system, Yeah. If you see a private specialist, then again, you pay some out-of-pocket costs, which is what I do in order to see my gynecologist. You know, I I can't remember exact numbers, but say, for example, it's a $300 consultation. I might get, say, $160, $170 of that back or something. So, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so I'm just always curious about that because it can be like it can be so different place to place. So, so then before I interrupted you for a whole bunch of tangents, you said mm-hmm. so you decided that you're going to pursue IVF. And have you started that process? Yes. So I started that process in October, beginning of October with the follicle stimulating hormone injections. It turned out to be a lot more difficult than they had anticipated. And again, they're putting this down to the endometriosis and probably quite rightly so, because I don't know that there's anything else to put it down to. So yeah, they were expecting or hoping um, to get between six and 10 um, follicles, six and 10 eggs by the end of the, the the process. And I went for an ultrasound. So actually, I went for a blood test about a week after I started having the injections. And they told me that I wasn't really responding very much to their medication. So they were going to increase the dose. So we did that. And then another not quite week after that, maybe five days after that, I went for an ultrasound so that they could ascertain how many follicles I'd produced. As I say, expecting hopefully around 10, maybe six, if it wasn't looking so good, and they found three. Hmm. So I was pretty upset. 
And they said, your doctor may want to cancel this. You know, there's not a whole lot of point in charging you, you know, more than $10,000 for an egg pickup or an egg harvest if there aren't going to be any. Mm -hmm. And my gynecologist was very kind and she called me in person and said, you know, very gently, look, I don't ever see this getting any better. Mm -hmm. You know, your fertility clearly has been affected. And particularly, you know, my left ovary was never really going to produce very much anyway. So let's, you know, obviously it's entirely my choice, but what I would suggest to you is that, you know, you do go ahead with giving yourself the ovulation trigger and we go ahead with the egg pickup and just see what happens. You know, hopefully each of those three follicles will produce an egg. Mm -hmm. So I went into the hospital for the egg retrieval surgery and they so they give you they sedate you they don't it's not a general anesthetic but I was out of it I didn't I didn't know anything until I woke up afterwards I had this little sticker on the back of my hand that said one egg they'd only managed to get one so I was devastated that it was bad news because the chances of one making it all the way through Mm -hmm. the fertilization stage the division stage the blastocyst stage are very very small but also I was devastated because I'd had bad news given to me with a sticker on the back of my hand. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All I wanted, especially after the operation in July, all I wanted was for somebody to break news to me in person. Um, And again, I had to read it off this little piece of paper. So yeah, I told my GP afterwards and she looked, you know, a little bit horrified. She said, I've not not heard of that happening before. So yeah, I was pretty upset that, that that's that's how it had happened and also obviously more upset by the fact that it wasn't great news mm-hmm. um, so yeah they the fertility clinic were very kind I went back there a few hours after I um, woke up from the egg retrieval surgery and they gave me the forms necessary told me what was going to happen next they were going to fertilize the egg the same well they were going to hope that the egg would fertilize the same day. They would put it in a petri dish with 20,000 donated sperm from the donor that I picked and hope for the best and call me the next day to let me know if it had been successful. So my best friend stayed with me overnight. They don't, they don't want, after anesthetic, they don't want you sort of on your own. So yeah, and another friend came over to, you know, spend some time with me in the afternoon as well. And between the three of us, we talked things through and I had some support and that's really nice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they called me from the fertility clinic the following day and said, the good news is the egg is fertilized. So we'll call you again in a couple of days time. So this was on a Saturday. We'll call you again on Monday and, and let you know if it's developed any further, if it's survived the weekend. So that Sunday was the longest day of my life. They called me back on the Monday and said things were looking good, that it had survived the weekend, it was doing really well, it was what they called a grade one embryo. I had to ask what that meant because I had no idea. And they said that there are four four grades basically and the first three transferable and the only the first one I think is if you wanted to freeze it would be a freezing quality mm. um grades one two and three are a de- a decent enough quality for them to be able to to implant to transfer into you yet yeah, implant and yeah again they said look we'll book you in for the embryo transfer in a couple of days time if you don't hear from us again then it will all go ahead if we do call you in the meantime it will be to let you know obviously that this embryo has passed away and you won't be able to have it and then and they didn't call so on the Wednesday I went in and they did the um, embryo transfer 
And then I had, yeah, the longest nine days of my life after that, even longer than that first Sunday, waiting um, for them to do a pregnancy test. Although I did buy one at the chemist, I didn't dare take it. They they say that, you know, for a few days it's going to be too early anyway, mm-hmm. and I was just convinced my body was useless, it was going to be negative, um, you know, even if the embryo was very healthy and of a decent quality, my body was going to kill it. So I didn't. I waited for the blood test. And anyway, it was successful so far. I am pregnant. Um, and yeah, just hoping for the best. I've had a lot of cramps, though, which they're putting down to the endometriosis still. Sort of the, I know they, they say that uh, it's not unusual to get cramping, mild cramping in the first few weeks of a pregnancy, but these haven't been particularly mild. So I was in hospital on Friday so that they could do some investigations because I was convinced I was, you know, having miscarriage. But so far, so good. It's just, it looks like it's it's more endometriosis cramping. So just like hormones are changing and that tissue doesn't like that yeah (laughs) it has grown back or some of it has grown back because the ultrasounds that they've done in the past three months have revealed another endometrioma on Mm. on my left yeah there there are still problems um but cross fingers so far so good yeah and like something that's super striking especially about your story is that with endometriosis, it's like there's a couple of different things, right? Like there's how it impacts your quality of life for everybody that has it. And then there's also how it impacts your fertility if you're a person who wants kids. Exactly. And, And I feel like as you've demonstrated really, really well, the way that you try to manage it like is directly related to kind of what your goals are in both of those things because they can be at odds with each other. And that's difficult yeah a lot of women don't find out that they have endometriosis actually until um, they struggle to get pregnant mm-hmm. and that it's infertility that is the first thing that um sort of their doctors pick up on mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah. Um, and it's only the fertility investigations that eventually reveal the reasons why they've had pain yeah yeah, yeah. that sounds familiar i definitely know a few people who found out in that context and that's mm-hmm. Yeah, it's loaded in its own way, of course. Absolutely. Um, And so how was the IVF process? Because you did just describe it in a lot of detail. But basically, it's like you take a hormone to Mm -hmm. stimulate more follicles, which for anybody listening who has not learned that much about the cycle, that's like the little nest that the egg develops in. So we're born with anyone who is born with ovaries is born with all of the eggs that they're going to have, right? And then they mature cyclically over your fertile years i guess and like over develop a little fluid filled cyst basically every month which your egg develops in and when that little cyst bursts your egg comes out and travels down the fallopian tube in normal circumstances and ivf they give you hormones to produce more than one um, of these little follicle cysts during the same month and instead of allowing an egg to um, appear in each one and burst and travel down the fallopian tubes they give you a second in- or you'd give yourself a second injection which halts egg production until about 36 hours before they're ready to collect the eggs and then you give yourself a trigger injection which hopefully will feed each of those little follicles that you've developed with a fresh egg that they can then use a needle to to extract the fluid with the egg inside it yeah gotcha and then two just like fun facts fun is definitely the wrong word but uh, Mm -hmm. fun facts about 
biology, I guess, is that those little fluid cysts, which have another name that I forget what it is right now. It's something like long and probably Latin. I think. Yes, corpus luteum. And so that is where the egg develops. And PCOS, which is like a different gynecological condition, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or is when those cysts don't rupture. And so people with the like polycystic being many cysts, the cysts are not real cysts. They're actually just unruptured, unruptured egg bundles, follicles. And then the other piece of just fun information, because we were talking about hormones so much, is that the corpus lute- luteum or luteus? Lute- luteum, yeah. Yeah, corpus luteum is what produces progesterone. So that's where people get the bulk of their progesterone, which is why if the cycle is disrupted in some way, people can become, like people with PCOS typically, have high estrogen levels and low progesterone because their body is just literally, most of their estrogen source has been messed up. So, mm. and that makes sense because that's such that's like the end of the cycle when we produce progesterone. And so if that's being messed up in some way, maybe that's why taking progesterone helps in some cases. I don't know. But just like diversions of explaining things that we've kind of um, talked about in passing. What I understand, um, and I, I don't understand much <laughs> as a medic, but from what I understand, endometriosis feeds on estrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, progesterone helps to calm it down, helps to stop it developing quite so quickly and obviously helps with the pain for that mm-hmm. reason too. Um, but yeah, so the the less estrogen you're producing, then the, the less problematic it will be. But obviously as you go through ovulation, you do produce uh, estrogen. So if you're having injections to stimulate ovulation, then yeah for a little while actually the pain gets worse mm-hmm. yeah so, because you're you know you're encouraging the the, the hormone that that causes things to to problematize yeah although you know afterwards if things are successful uh, then it does calm down but yeah mm-hmm. and so now i'm just thinking of right so the shots because i think everyone in just in my own life, not on the podcast, everyone who I've spoken to who's been through IVF definitely say that the shots are a real ride because of that, because of the hormones, of course. And then I the sticker that's unreal to find out news that way or get an update on your own health. Like that's the most bizarre. I, I can I can see to be honest a little bit why they do it, and that they know that when you wake up you're going to be groggy. Yeah. Um, and they probably want to avoid you asking the same question 10 times. Mm-hmm. Give you a piece of paper before you leave the hospital with a number written on it officially. So, you know, that would be enough to confirm it. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice to to have that broken to me gently. Yeah. They could tell you and then give you the sticker to refer to. Exactly. Yes. I think that would be a much better way of doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's okay I want to talk about this like and I know that there's so there's so much more to it than that so I'm trying to like think about how I phrase my own words but because as we've already talked about obviously like pregnancy isn't just a like tactical cure for a health issue yeah (laughs) right and so I want to talk about pregnancy kind of in both of those contexts so pregnancy you produce a lot of progesterone during pregnancy on this practical side yeah yeah and so there's like into as a way of okay sorry my brain is really fried so they had recommended (laughs) it 
ready in the morning. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very early for you, right? I actually, I'm talking to someone else who lives in Australia today. So I, I assume everyone will be groggy in different directions. <laughs> so, so it's a, from the like, how, how this interacts with your body basically was about like, one, this can actually have an impact on the endometriosis itself because there mm-hmm. it will be a time that is so progesterone dominant and that could be a good thing from your body. Two, yeah. after the laparoscopy, if you have fertility goals, this is a good time because we've removed so much of the tissue and it will Completely. come back. Yeah. And three, that endometriosis can also directly impact your fertility, like you'd said, because it can cause it can wrap around your ovaries, it can just like actually <laughs> impact function. Yeah. 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 So all of that is in play at once. And then how mm-hmm. does it have any other impacts for pregnancy? Like you had mentioned that your cramping is still bad. Is Obviously, this I know you I, don't know a lot of this, but what do you know? This I have to find out a lot more, actually, when I have my next appointment. But having been in the hospital on Friday, they said to me, the, the so they did obviously blood tests and an ultrasound to make sure that I wasn't having a miscarriage. And they said they were very happy with both with the results of both of those tests. And that, so obviously my first question was, well, what's causing the pain? You know, this is not normal pain. This is quite intense. You know, when I woke up in the middle of the night, this was very definitely like a seven out of 10. By the time I got to the hospital and taken a few Panadol, it was maybe more like a five or a six, but still, you know, it's not mm-hmm. mild pain. So they said, well, you know, all the markers are still there for your endometriosis. It's likely that that could be what's causing the problem. So I don't know, to be honest, what the um, implications of that will be further throughout the pregnancy or in the initial stages of the pregnancy, whether it will cause cramping that might trigger a miscarriage or whether it simply just means that the cramps that normally are mild in early pregnancy and somebody with endometriosis very often are not mild. I'm not sure whether it's something that's simple, simply explained or whether it's something that is potentially dangerous for the baby. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I don't at all mean to, like, fear monger. I just i am wondering kind of what, what information do you have going into this with this thing about your body that you're learning? I would like there to be, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, it's not something that really appears in pregnancy books. Mm-hmm. Even those which are really great and do talk about endometriosis. And so there's a famous Australian one actually called Up the Dove, which I guess is the Australian equivalent of what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah, um, And it does actually have quite a lot in it about endometriosis. But even that doesn't tell you to what extent your endometriosis is likely to cause a miscarriage or is likely to cause you extended pain in mm-hmm. whatever age of pregnancy whatever trimester right just how they play together kind of yeah and also how endometriosis affects fertility and slows down you know the likelihood of you being able to conceive yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I would think like one kind of to, to go in a slightly different direction for a second one of the things about endometriosis I feel like there's a huge Instagram community I don't know if you've looked at that at all or spent any time there and like all all directions of chronic illness, it's a huge Instagram community full of like dietary and lifestyle advice that is maybe dubious. Like it's very anecdotal of like how people what people think has helped them that they are now recommending as like universal. And so, yeah, yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time on Instagram, but I have account- encountered the same things on Facebook and mm-hmm. you know other 
social media outlets. Yes, particularly with forums, actually. There's a lot of, I'm going through this, can I ask the advice of other people? Or somebody who finds something useful and puts up a new post saying, hey, everybody try this. Obviously, not everything works for everyone, for starters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the best advice you can possibly get from any of these is, like, talk to your doctor before you do anything. Yeah. You know, if you're going to put yourself on some magic diet, you know, speak to somebody first because, yes, it might help, but it might make things worse. It, you know, everybody is completely different. I found those forums both useful and not useful. Certainly useful in terms of building a community, mm-hmm. in terms of meeting other women who've had this, because I, until I had my diagnosis, I didn't know anybody else who'd had it, mm-hmm. which is partly a fault of the social convention system, I guess, that people don't talk about periods that much. Yeah, because you um, probably do, and you probably have. Endometriosis, you know, yeah. I've met friends who have had it for years and who obviously don't introduce themselves with that to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've obviously met new people through forums who have, you know, been looking for suggestions for doctors or trying to deal with the frustration of um, being treated like a drug seeker when they ask for pain medication. I've not had that, very pleased to say. But obviously a lot of people do. So in terms of community and support, it's very useful. There's a lot of, there are a lot of problems that come with that though. For starters, you can never compare yourself to somebody else. You know, if somebody else is taking the same medication you are and doing a lot better than you on it, it makes you feel down. Mm -hmm. Um, And also if somebody else sees the same specialist you do and gets answers that you haven't been able to get because maybe they're they're just not there in your case, that makes you down to um yeah or you know somebody else has been able to speak to somebody after their operation and you weren't able to do that or even if so in my case I eventually was but only because I got so upset that they mm-hmm. didn't dare let leave the hospital in such a condition that I felt very inadequate in the end that I'd had to ask for something that I wasn't technically supposed to have asked for mm-hmm. whereas others I've spoken to have said oh that was just normal that was a normal state of affairs somebody came to talk to me like an hour after I woke up or whatever, mm-hmm. or minutes after I woke up, even just for 30 seconds, just to say, we found it, but you're going to be okay. Yeah. So that level of comparing yourself with other people is probably never a good idea. Right. That's where the social media falls down a little bit. But, you know, that's that's just the way things are with it. You know, it's never, that's never going to change. You know, no. you have to take it with a smooth, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, when you... What, because I agree, like what what can be helpful about it is even just when you have that emotional reaction, kind of going, do other people feel this way? Because it's less yeah. like, what is the standard yeah. of care? Which, like you're yeah. saying, you can kind of get into like weird conversations about that. But just knowing that you're yeah. not the only one person. But yeah, as you say, knowing yeah. that you're not the only one helps. I think the one thing that has and again, and it's it's a double-edged sword in many ways, but so a lot of my friends who obviously have known that I've had problems with my periods for years, but none of us knew why, have looked into endometriosis since I got my diagnosis, which I found really kind and really helpful. Mm-hmm. They've looked things up, they've made themselves aware um, of what it is I've got, and have sent me links to, you know, various useful websites or articles or episodes of radio podcasts or whatever that have talked about it. 
and that's been great but it is a, it, it is a massive double edged sword because a lot of the links that I've been getting recently are to BBC articles there's been a, a BBC survey actually that I took part in one of the biggest they've ever done as far as I'm aware of uh, several thousand women and it's leading now to an inquiry in the UK led by MPs as to why endometriosis has taken so long to diagnose for so many women and why it's not as treatable or as researched as something like diabetes which is just as common so those articles although I find that them comforting in a way that nobody else will ever have to have you know, go undiagnosed for 22 years and kind of people to send to me, it it breaks my heart a little every time I read them because when I'm looking at them and it's the average length of a diagnosis is seven or eight years, I think, well, you know what, that would be a 15-year improvement for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't really understand why it's 2019, this inquiry is only just taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Obviously, awareness is much greater over here in Australia. Why has it not been in the UK? Mm-hmm. Why have the specialists that I've seen over the course of the last 20 years not been excision specialists or not had the inkling to suggest endometriosis to me? Why is it not more commonly discussed in with within sort of the GP community in the UK. Why was that not the first thing suggested to me? Maybe not when I was 12, but when I was 22. Or, you know, even back in 2015, 2016, when my symptoms started to get worse, why was that not suggested to me then? You know, the third or fourth time that I ended up severely anemic why was it not suggested to me then so yeah all of these articles are really great and I think it's wonderful that the BBC is doing this investigation or this survey of so many women and that they've they've actually put videos out online um, interviewing several women with endometriosis and I think it's all great but every time I see it it has this psychological sort of impact of making me feel that that worthlessness again mm-hmm. yeah yeah because it is it's like it's enraging and One thing that I also get really frustrated with about gynecological stuff that we've kind of talked about a few times is like sometimes it will also people often only find out when they're going through fertility, like as you were saying, when they're looking into infertility. But it's also the fertility issues are not the biggest problem here. Like it's the quality of life issues. And so I'm just as frustrated that like a lot of discussion around it kind of is like, yeah, well, maybe it causes painful periods, but like it's interfering with these people's ability to get pregnant. And like, yes, and that matters. I am not saying that doesn't matter, but like that is not. It's something that, you know, you you desperately want and you've always wanted. Yeah. Um, But obviously, as you say, it, it has massive implications before that. And it probably wouldn't have, I mean, again, I'm no medic. I'm not gonna, you know, don't quote me on this, but I'm willing to bet that it wouldn't have quite the same impact on fertility if people discovered it earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because and you can make choices, like... Sure, you can. And also, hopefully, you would be able to, you know, prevent it before it got severe. Yes, okay, you know, you might not be able to prevent it completely. Of course not. It's not curable. It's certainly not right now. But you might be able to prevent somebody's fallopian tubes from becoming blocked. Or right. you might be able to get there before it was necessary to remove an ovary or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's all of this stuff is mixed up together. It is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And And I wonder, like... Because I feel like I hear the same kind of general discussions here or in North America. I mean, I I met 
like not as my doctor, but I met a doctor, a gynecologist in Toronto recently who was like, my thing is that I want people to know about endometriosis. It is not that hard to diagnose. Like really, Mm -hmm. if you have debilitating periods, you probably have endometriosis and you should never Mm -hmm. be going for 10 years of not being able to function because your periods are so painful without someone bringing that up to you. That should never Mm -hmm. happen. And this was like her soapbox that she's getting on, but because it, it shouldn't. It's a huge problem for a lot of people. It, yeah. And as you, you know, you rightly say, it it isn't just, it's not just about the fertility, it's about the quality of life. And that includes not just physical pain, but emotional pain too. And the longer you leave it, the worse those psychological problems become and the worse they are when you eventually do have to confront them, you know, like full on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm confronting things now that I should have confronted when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I'd known that there was a severe medical condition for some of the things that I ended up getting bullied for, I could have dealt with it a lot better back yeah. then. And, you know, it maybe wouldn't have had the same kind of impact on my life that it did. And yeah, I know you can never sort of spend your time looking back and saying, oh, if the past had been different, blah, blah, blah. But to some extent, that's inevitable. You know, mm-hmm. you always say, would my life have been improved if what would have happened if and certainly when it comes to you know the desire to have children as you say you could you could make choices if you knew mm-hmm. you know I wouldn't necessarily have waited till my mid-30s to think about having children if I'd known that I was going to have fertility problems you know I could have started 10 years ago knowing that it might take a long time for this to be able to work mm-hmm. when I still reasonably decent egg reserve you know because obviously on top of the endometriosis I now have my age Mm -hmm. so yeah it is it's it's something that doesn't just need to be dealt with in terms of pain in terms of pain management in terms of better diagnostic techniques it's something that needs to be dealt with in terms of psychological health too obviously the earlier you deal with things the less you have to deal with difficult problems. Mm -hmm. And I think like on the most basic level, like what really resonates with me with what you're saying about those pieces is just like when you are in pain and experiencing kind of related symptoms as well, and you're getting the message that it's not being caught, like you're not getting the message that something is causing it, I guess. And then there's all these like related ideas, which is that everyone's going through this and you're not handling it or Mm -hmm. it's all in your head because there's no Mm -hmm. physical explanation. Like there's so many kind of parallel things in there. And it's not just how that shapes the time that you're like that time when you're younger. It's also how that becomes or it can become like your own internal voice. And so later, even when you do have an explanation, this is one of those things that I think like everyone I talk to is working through a version of this is like, Mm. I know now why it's happening. But if I don't, if I'm not vigilant about like recognizing my thoughts, there's a voice in my head that keeps telling me like, Mm -hmm. just suck it up because that's the voice that I heard when I was 13 or whatever. Yeah. As you're developing, you Mm -hmm. know, and this is sort of the sort of thing that I've been discussing with the counselor Mm -hmm. that, yeah, um, that, developing voice as you call it or trauma or whatever mm-hmm. they want to call it is what shapes you especially if it happens at a young age or you know as you're developing as a teenager and it is really hard to shake it off even though you know that 
you should, and you know that you have been vindicated, and that there is, you know, a decent reason, a medical reason for what you've been going through, there is still this voice in the back of your head that says, oh, come on, you know, you really need to be at work right now. Mm -hmm. You haven't got time to be lying here in pain. You know, you've got a deadline. Or, you know, oh, maybe my pain threshold is so much lower than everybody else's. You know, maybe I'm struggling right now because what my, what I'm describing as a level nine pain is what somebody else would say was a level three or something. Yeah. Um, you know, it really makes you question what is mild, moderate and severe pain. And it's massively subjective. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, it all, ugh, I'm just thinking about it. It all get, gets like mixed in there. It's like cooked into our coping mechanisms and our everything in the hospital on Friday you know how bad is your pain right now and I was having the the cramps and I said it's about a five out of ten and then I said I know that doesn't sound very much but a you know I'm used to getting ten out of ten with the worst of my periods and b I would say a five out of ten is enough for me to panic that I'm having a miscarriage mm -hmm. you know it's not called mild pain as soon as they you know google or pregnancy books or whatever say to you as long as it's not mild pain that's what as soon as it's not mild pain that's when you need to contact your doctor yeah so i know a five out of ten doesn't sound massive right now but she's like no no no, no. this is your pain scale you know like nobody is going to judge you and it was really nice to hear that because i'd felt that for so long people were judging me whether yeah. it was directly or indirectly mm -hmm. um just by virtue of not um, being taken as seriously as I would have liked. Yeah, I did. I, I still judge myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And pain scales separately, depending on the practitioner, are also not useful for all of the reasons you just described. And it's like yeah. some people will never say 10 out of 10 because they're like, no matter how much pain I'm in, I can theoretically. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. I can always imagine more. And so I'm not doing it. And some people are like, I'm in such excruciating pain that I think it's a 12. And I don't think yeah. that either of those people are wrong, but it just no, like. Someone, there are some people who never say higher than eight, and there are some people whose scale actually goes up to 15. And so, yeah. as far as information goes, it's like imperfect. And, like you say, especially when you weren't like, it's a five out of 10. So, I, which I'm not saying you shouldn't need pain relief at that time, but you weren't going in because you wanted pain management. You were going in because you were worried about this other, about your pregnancy, of course. And they did give me morphine for the pain, a very small amount. They said they actually had me worked up for more if I needed it. And they kept coming back and saying, how is the pain? Do you need more pain medication? I must have been asked about five times whether I wanted more pain medication. And every time I said no, I was, as you say, I was not there as a drug seeker. I was there because I thought I was losing my baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which, and that's a whole separate complicated conversation about when they think that people deserve pain relief, but we can table that as complicated. Yeah. yeah. And is there anything else about this whole thing that we haven't talked about yet since we've gone through? Obviously, we've caught up to the present, of course, with you. Yes. I think, no, I mean, uncertainty, I mm -hmm. guess, is, is a big one, but I guess we've covered that in several other manners. But... No, I mean, um, I, I think, yeah, pretty much we've we've covered most things. Um, yeah, we've been thorough. It's usually the answer is no, I think, but sometimes people kind of are like, oh wait, I know I had one idea that I wanted to bring up, and it just didn't come up in the, in the narrative. So, not that I can think of. Yeah. No. Well, thank you so much for taking the very early in the morning time to talk to me about all of these things. It's important. 
Yeah, thank you very much for talking to me about it too. I have to say this is one of the most useful things to do, actually. To Firstly, to sort of work up the courage to discuss this publicly, because until people do discuss things like this publicly, it will remain a taboo subject and it will become harder to get diagnoses, which is one of the reasons I love the fact that they, they're starting to talk about it on the radio a lot more and to have sort of these podcasts or conversations about it. And I believe that novels and so on are, are beginning to be written about it too. That is a really useful thing. But it's also really nice, and it's obviously also really nice to sort of get the word out there so that some 12-year-old somewhere who is collapsing and vomiting in public yeah. doesn't have to wait 10 years or 20 years to find out what's wrong with them. But it's, it is also really nice just to chat, you know, just to know that mm. there are forums where you can say, look, this is how I feel. And... I am massively appreciative of all the work that's been done for me, especially in the last like eight, nine months and, and so on. And the treating team that I have now, the counselor, the GP, the gynecologist, the fertility clinic, the nurses, they're all absolutely amazing. And it's nice, obviously, to be able to, to give them recognition too. But yeah, it's just nice to be able to sit here for like an hour or an hour and a half or whatever and, and chat about things that you don't get chance to in like a 20-minute appointment or whatever. So Yes, yes. Because I think most people, I'm in a weird position now where I talk to so many people about their health, but mm. most of us in our daily life, like, even with people who really care about us sometimes, mm. like, partly I think because if they don't have an experience that relates, it's like, there's a lot more explaining the kind of underlying stuff as opposed to just, like, talking about the experience and the feelings, if that makes sense. I, again, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, like, foggy today. <laughs> but, yeah, I it's important. It's important to be able to talk about it and talk about it, your experiences, instead of always, I think people who advocate get in kind of a like a spokesperson place. Yeah. yeah. And that's important too, but it's different. Yes. Yeah. There are absolutely two completely different ways of, of dealing with things. It is very important, obviously, to to make government bodies aware and to make, you know, the healthcare system in general more aware of of what women have been going through and to make the public aware to make family and friends aware that is you know Mm -hmm. absolutely thousand percent necessary but there is always going to be this little personal sort of aspect to things that people desperately need to to confront yeah yes okay thank you thank you for listening to episode 65 of no end in sight you can find Christy on Twitter at C Margrave and on Instagram at Comrie to Canberra, which I hope I didn't butcher too much. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BenSB, and you can find the show on Instagram at no.end.in.site.pod. Don't forget you can sign up to support the show over at patreon.com no slash no end in sight if you have a few bucks to spare each month. And if you don't, you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes because it's a really great way for new people to know what to expect. As usual, don't forget, I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. Um, And also, a fun update for cross-stitchers out there, I guess, which maybe is more of you than I think. Um, But my pattern store, Digital Artisanal, is back online, and I'm giving away unlimited free patterns right now with the coupon code NEIS. So you can check those out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.